0: Hello, my dear and worthy friends. I apologize effusely and throw myself like a penitent at your furry feet, but the exiges of travel and work and training and racing and, God help me, sleeping every once in a while, I have finally been brought... What's the word I'm looking for? I have finally been brought to bay cornered like a mangy rat, and there is no way I can put out a full episode this week. It's a dirty shame, because with so much going on, I have a lot to share. But alas, no time to share it. Instead, I'm going to lay at the altar of your listening skills my Pocatello Marathon report today, and try to polish up a full episode for next week. Over the last month, I have been in California, Idaho, Atlanta, Phoenix, yikes. And this weekend, I'm driving up to Presque Isle in Erie, Pennsylvania to race once again. I raced an eight-mile leg of the Winnipesaukee Relay last weekend in New Hampshire, and I really crushed it. I averaged uh, just around 715 miles, 715 minutes per mile over a very difficult hilly course and i had the punk rock in my headphones and i was laughing out loud at how good i felt i passed a couple of other racers many years my junior and it felt great to be in the game so my friends light those candles and put on some sexy music because i am about to tell you the story of my pocatello marathon enjoy Pocatello Marathon, eight thirty-one, two 2013 Marathon of the Month, number five. Let me be worthy, I said in a soft, broken and choked voice. We are a huddle of a few hundred runners in the pre-dawn, moonless still of the high Idaho desert. Our huddle is thrown into stark white light relief by the portable spotlight array playing on our backs, no doubt borrowed from some municipal night-paving project. The hum of the generator, the restless sounds of a few hundred pensive souls, and I'm having a moment. In this open place of stars and skies, I found myself sobbing quietly into the dark as the national anthem drifted over us. Unaided by a microphone from a gifted and generous volunteer, to be in this place, to be alive in this world, to have the opportunity, to have the adventures, to do the things I love. Here in this quiet place, so many thousand miles from home, I feel small and out of place. Please let me be worthy of these great gifts. Let me be worthy. This seems to be the appropriate supplication. Boise is a college town. In the full bloom of a new year, parents and kids, hipsters with goatees, pondering worn copies of poetry, tattooed and sporting dirty bare feet, lounging in coffee shops and brew pubs, there's nothing here. It's a city, but the biggest building around, dwarfing all the others, is the Boise State Football Stadium. There's a Whole Foods next to my hotel. I cruise through and grab a $10 salad and some other provisions. Thursday, I spend with a wonderful client learning their story and taking good notes and trying to add value. Friday, I'm up at 5 a.m. local time to jump on five straight hours of calls. Then I'm back over to Whole Foods to stock up on fruits and veggies before embarking on the three-and-a-half-hour cross-country drive to Pocatello. I've rented a cute little red Toyota Yaris Compact with 200 miles on it. I may, in fact, be its very first driver. I have an immediate man crush on this car. It's peppy and easy to maneuver with 360 degree vision. It's got a mystical jack hidden in the glove box for my iPhone USB so I can catch up on my podcasts. And it gets 4,000 miles per gallon. It's a little light and exciting when a surprise blast of crossed wind or truck hits me out on the long two-lane strip of asphalt through the wasted nothing. The temperature is reading in the 90s outside, and at one point my iPhone overheats from sitting in the sun with the GPS on. It's not like I need the GPS. It's one highway for 3.5 hours. I perched the iPhone in front of the AC vent to keep it cool. The Idaho wilderness rolls by unabated at 80 miles an hour. The speed limit out here is 75, so I set the cruise and worry if my little car has been designed for this much velocity in the desert. There are no trees. It is rolling brown scrub and broken brown rocks. Every 30 to 50 miles, there's a farm or a homestead with fields under watering systems where there are patches of green. Each farmhouse has its collection of five to ten trees clustered around it to break the wind that howls in. They sprout up in stark contrast, like naked genitalia on a shaved pubis. Coming in from the green depths of New England, the switch seems starker to me than it probably is. It's like a tableau out of one of those old cowboy and Indian movies. Lava rock attests to the supervolcano that coughed up this land and still lurks beneath. There are gravel pits and great gouges. I cross the Snake River and drive on with the truckers on to Pocatello. Pocatello is a pretty big burg with lots of stores and hotels and industry. I'm staying at a Super 8 to save money directly across the street from the race hotel. Matt, the manager, tells me that it's been newly refurbished and I'm not allowed to smoke in the rooms. I assure him that that's not likely to happen. I tell him I'm here for the marathon, and I get that question that I will be asked three or four more times before my stay is over. How long is that marathon? Stepping into my room, I am aghast with how nasty it smells. That old motel that has been smoked in for 30 years straight smell. My expectations were low, but this is nasty. I go back to the desk and ask Matt how their newly refurbished smoke-free rooms could smell so badly of decades of smoke. And he guesses that maybe that might have been one of the old smoking rooms and gives me a much nicer smelling room. I guess newly refurbished means slapped up a coat of paint. I trade texts with my new friend Ron, a local who has offered to drive the course with me. I walk over to the Clarion Hotel, where the expo is being held, and he meets me at the door. I pick up my race packet, which is a nice gear bag for bag check, and a five-pound bag of potatoes. I honestly haven't even looked at the race packet they mailed out, and I'm surprised by this spudly largesse. What the heck am I going to do with five pounds of potatoes? I'm certainly not dragging them back on the plane with me to Boston. I ask Ron out loud if there isn't some deserving charity that I can contribute my spuds to when another smiling runner overhears me and says he'll gladly take them off my hands. Everybody is super nice. We chat up the pacing team table. They have a 335 pace group and a 325 pace group, but no 330 pacer. I'm feeling puckish, and I tell the guy it's my first marathon. What should I do? Ron probably thinks I'm a nutcase. The guy tells me I should go out with the slower pace group and then make up the five minutes at the end. I think he's trying to protect me from myself. Ron and I drive down to the finish. I park my rental and jump in Ron's pickup to drive the course. We get up to the goat barn on top of the mountain that is the start and check the altitude. It's 6,008 feet. But it's got a beautiful panoramic view of the surrounding brown hills. From the start, the course drops, and it drops hard. The first mile reminds me of the drop out of Hockington. And it keeps dropping down a winding two lane blacktop that curves in and around the hills. As we drive I see the markings for the aid stations and a stack of portageons every couple of miles. I Joke to run that I've never seen so many portajeons for such a small race. They must be expecting food poisoning at the spaghetti dinner. At mile 7, there's one of those little out and backs that races have to throw in to make the mileage correct. It's the first uphill on the course and it's really nothing. We keep driving the course and it keeps meandering downhill, past the half and into mile 14 where it finally flattens out and starts to roll a little. Around mile 20, 21, it ducks under the highway and climbs out of a valley for the longest hill of the course. A decent half mile pull, and then it rolls back down into the finish. Run leaves me to go get some sleep. I pull on my shoes and run the course backwards from the finish line in the afternoon heat. At the 25 mile mark, I stop and walk to look around. I try to visualize the finish and take note of the turns and the milestones. I intend to jog, but I can't help myself from stretching out a nice easy tempo pace back around the two 90-degree left turns and the long stretch into the finish line. I've worked up a little sweat, but the air is so dry it'll soon be gone. I drive back to my discount motel and lay out my race kit, my Brooks baggy shorts with the liner, my Squanacook River Runner singlet I pin the bib on, Calf sleeves, racing socks, the man thong tech support system, my Boston twenty thirteen hat, and I throw a long sleeve shirt in the pile because Ron says it's cold in the morning up there on top of the mountain at the starting line. I throw a towel in the bag for the post race shower and some hotel shampoo and soap. I didn't bring the Hokas this trip. I had a lot of stuff to carry on this trip, and the Brooks launch take up less space. The plantar fasciitis has been minding its own business, so I think I'm safe, but I worry about the pounding of all that downhill. My launches are significantly smelly from the summer training. Nothing too bad, just the overwhelming smell of many hundred miles of man-sweat in the hot, sticky New England climbs. I also lay out five hammer gels, a handful of Enduralites, a roll of athletic tape, a tube of heat rub, and a small tube of aquaphor. I put out a banana and a cliff bar for breakfast and get the in-room coffee pot ready for quick use. I mix up two bottles of half-strength Gatorade, one for the race and one to sip through the morning. I take a shower and wander over to the Applebee's to see if there is anything I can eat. It's busy, so I find myself a seat at the bar. I have a salad of some sort with a couple of fat tires and finish reading The Bell Jar, which I found by the side of the road during one of my last long runs. The last 50 pages or so are pretty good. It's like the female version of The Outsiders or Catcher in the Rye. I turn the last page and hand it to Stephanie, the bartender, with my compliments, telling her how I found it. And yes, this would be one of those 26-mile marathons. It's been a long day. It's been a long week. I'm wrong time zone dog tired when I finally rack out and set my alarm for 4.30 a.m. local time. Somewhere near the 23-mile mark, there's a small crowd huddled around a runner on the ground, administering help. Was that Alice? The 30-year-old from Seattle who we ran the first 13 miles with, it looked like her shirt. It was her second marathon. She ran a 3.36 in the first one and was looking for a PR. That looked like her shirt. Steve, the pace group leader, and I both noticed she was running a bit loose and were trying to get her to tighten up her stride and relax. You shouldn't be breathing that hard through the first half of a downhill marathon. Steve told me later when I saw him at the finish that she had collapsed. I was up before the alarm with the noise of others stirring in the hotel I cooked my coffee chewed a cliff bar and greased up and stretched a little I packed up my stuff and put it in the rental car I took my race bag and walked next door to where a line of buses sat idling in the dark full of runners headed to the start They drove us up to the barn with the goats and we all got in line to use the porta potty I met and chatted with Iram Leon who we have interviewed recently It was good to meet him in the flesh. I sucked up an espresso hammer gel on a proscriptive Enduralite. I rubbed around the free sunscreen that came in the race stuff and perched my sunglasses on top of my hat for later. I ran the whole race that way with the sunglasses perched on top of my hat. I never actually put them on. The crowd was your typical small remote marathon mix of 50 staters and marathon maniacs and locals. Ron found me in the corral, and I had my teary moment of introspection before the start. We lined up around the 325 pace group and ran off into the cool darkness. I didn't start my Garmin correctly in the dark. It was off by three quarters of a mile or so when I finally got to the right button. Having raced most of my life with nothing but a, the rudiments of a sports watch, I had no moment of panic that the techno slavish might. I was on a course with well-highlighted mile marks and I had my pace and average pace on the Garmin. I was not without sufficient compass for the task at hand. I wonder if it's an advantage to have matriculated in sparser, simpler times. The first seven miles or so, the course dropped significantly, so I sidled up to Steve, the 325 pacer, and stuck with him. I rolled out my annoying affability, much, I'm sure, to the dismay of that small pod of strivers. Steve started with a flock of 10 or 15 folks, but it dwindled away, and I don't know if Steve actually had anyone still with him at the finish. My race strategy du jour was to hang with Steve into the flats back off to my own race pace, and have a few minutes cushion at the end to bring it home, if I could. In a downhill start, you have to hold back without fighting the hill. It's tricky because your heart rate and your effort will seem too low, but your legs will actually be doing double the work, especially if you're braking against the hill. I put my energy into focusing on a light, easy form with a quick turnover, hips forward, elbows back, to keep my center of gravity over the hill, trying not to fight the hill or use my quads to break. The key to this race would be to save those legs for the flats and the finish. I worked the tangents on the winding road where I could. Still, it was hard to hold back, and even Steve was a couple minutes faster than planned coming out of the hill. I think I may have sucked him out a little with my jocular prattling. The course support was great, if not a bit quirky. The the adults at the aid stations were all in pajamas, and the kids were all dressed like black and white cows. I joked that there probably weren't a lot of vegans around. The nutrition offered was a bit outside my happy zone. The drink was fruit punch flavored Powerade, yuck. And they had power gels every so often. I'm old school and consider my proffered mana an outright undeserved gift from the race committee. I have no expectations. I grabbed a power gel around mile 12 that ended up being a nasty orange cream flavor. Double yuck. But with my strong stomach and general positive attitude on life, I gladly took my medicine and kept trucking towards the finish line. Of course, I start every race self-sufficient. I train and run with and then comfortably race with a 24-ounce bottle of half-strength Gatorade. My running friends would not recognize me without that Poland Springs sports bottle foraged from some local supermarket or gas station on the way to the race, clutched in my left hand. It's a holdover from days when there just wasn't that much support on race courses, but I'm sure... It's one of my totems and comforts as well. With the cool morning temps, my pale green sloshing totem lasted through the half, and after that I just refilled it with water and tried to take a gel every five or six miles before tossing it empty in the general vicinity of a volunteer late in the race like all its cousins and brothers, plastic totems before it through the years. Along with Steve out front, in the front row of our little group, We had Tracy from Arizona who was wearing a red race singlet that said EVR on it that stood for something Valley Runners but reminded me of the Newark airport code EWR. And there was Alice running too hard and breathing too hard and having to put up with Steve and I nagging about form and pace. Alice, if you somehow come across this story, shoot me a note and let me know what happened. And so we ambled down through the twisty turny mountain road, chatting and watching the sun come up. It's beautiful country, and none of us was really working too hard. I didn't feel great or bad, I just felt like any other long run. We passed through the 13.1 at 1.42-ish, which, if you do the math, translates to a 3.24-ish finish time. Steve was doing his job. A big crowd of half-marathoners was milling around, waiting for their start. They gave us a big cheer as we rolled by. Some in our pack exchanged words with people they knew, and there was much smiling and celebration. Their race was soon to start, and in reality, so was ours as the course flattened out. At mile 14, I stopped to refill my bottle with water, and I lost Steve. I was right on race strategy with a couple minutes in the bank, but not too much. Over the course of the race, I ended up drinking three bottles of fluid plus a couple of cups. It wasn't all that hot, but it was dry, and I did end up with a little sunburn in the thin mountain air. Each time I stopped to pour cups into my bottle, I lost a couple seconds, you know, 5, 10, 20 seconds, but I was still on pace. I didn't really lose Steve. I could see him up ahead running with Alice, and I stretch out my pace a little, and within a mile, I caught them as the course rolled gently downhill through the teens. We heard the gun for the half go off behind us and joked about harsh crowd control measures. I was right where I wanted to be, with three-ish minutes in the bank and running easy. That's how I planned my races. Not to succeed, but to put myself in a position to succeed to do the little things that will give me the opportunity to execute the coup de grace if it is my day, and the fates smile broadly in favor of my endeavor. But I felt tired and uninspired, and I was slowing down. I lost Steve somewhere in the mid-teens for good, and started taking some short walk breaks at the aid stations. My legs were okay. I was just tired, like, haven't gotten enough sleep tired, like, burning the candle at both ends tired, when the adrenaline drains out and you're left with the realization that you really are just tired. At one point, Ron passed me as I was taking a walk break on the shoulder, and I was focused on my average pace as the key number. I knew I had to hit eight minute miles at the end. And I went into the teen miles with a 7.46 average left over from the downhill section. And every time I took a walk break, I'd see it creep up by a couple of seconds. But there were still some downs on the course where I could beat the pace and hold the line. Now it was just a question of whether I could play the string out long enough and have enough in the final miles to bring it in. Not really a hero's task, more of an accountant's task. As I got into 19, 20, 21, I was starting to feel pretty hammered, and I was walking too much. And every time I took a walk break, that average would creep up by a couple of seconds. It was here that the half-marathoners started to pass us. First, just the good runners, then the morning glories, whose, whose crash corresponded with our own struggles. The last miles of the race were emotionally hard, because there was this line of sight of a couple of miles, with a road stretched out into the horizon with no cover for what seemed like infinity. It gave you sort of a hopeless feeling that the finish was out of reach. And I could feel an ache in my lungs, and I figured it was either the altitude or the forest fire smoke. And my legs were tired, and I was slogging it out. I don't know if I was actually incapacitated or just given in to the physical and mental tiredness. Maybe... If you could walk onto the course with a fresh mind at the 20 mile mark, you could urge more out of those legs. But when you're out there, it all telescopes in on itself and the tiredness becomes the focus. Some annoying kid from the half marathon pulled up beside me and declared he would run with me. And I gave him a sideways glance and kept my solitary struggle. And eventually he went away. I just wanted to keep moving. I did not need his adolescent company Another time I pulled over to walk and some 10K runner said, I guess it's just us losers. I shot him a dirty look and and kept running. He made some smart-ass comment. So I turned and told and said to him, Get over yourself, dude. I didn't say this, but I'm thinking, you're calling me a loser? You don't know me. I've seen things you'll never see. At mile 21, we turned under the highway underpass for the hill this is where our race overtook some other part of the race, maybe the 10k. There were a bunch of larger people walking, and it was a bit incongruous to have to weave through all these folks who my brother might refer to as wide glides late in the race. They were running their race. I was running mine. After the hill up out of the valley, it pitched down again, and I still had a 755 average to work with, but By mile 22, I was hurt, not bonked, just tired. Strategically, I had planned to be at this place. I had executed to be here with around four miles to go and five seconds per mile in the bank, but I was tired and I couldn't find the guts to hold the pace. And at mile 23, I pushed past that pile of people that looked like they were attending to Alice down in the middle of the blacktop. Now I was doing the math, trying to see if 8.15s would get me there, maybe with a kick. And I fought it to the finish, but ended up losing 5 or 6 minutes of positive split in the last few miles. My stride and balance from the PF made my quad strobe, and I limped a little bit as I crossed the finish line with a, like a 3.22.25. The finish was two hard left turns that I had reconnoitered the night before, but that last stretch into the chute seemed to go on forever and much longer than the half mile it was. I ended up with a 3.32.25, like I said, uh, chip time, net, net time, and about 80th place out of 400 overall. I'm still looking for that comfortable go-to pace for that last 10k. I slowed down a lot in the last four miles. I was still moving okay, just slow with walk breaks, but way better than that last marathon in July. I'm realizing that even though I stayed in shape during the injury, I lost a lot of running specific fitness. And at my age, it just isn't going to come back because I think it should or I want it to. The quality of training I've done over the last six months would have put me across the finish line with time to spare five years ago. Or maybe I can no longer summon that prefontaine animalistic passion to damn the torpedoes. I don't know. But I'm still having fun, having adventures, and doing things that the losers in this world don't even consider. I met up with Ron... At the finish, he had needed a 3.25, and he missed his time, too. I saw Steve, and he told me about Alice collapsing. I saw Tracy, and she missed her time by three minutes, too, so maybe the Pocatello Marathon isn't as easy in real life as it looks on paper. Ron and I sat at a picnic table and chatted with a young lady named Erin, who, ironically, placed in her age group with a time slightly slower than mine. The medals were big and heavy, which seems to be the trend, and I joked that I would have to start doing more core work to be able to wear the medals they're giving out these days. Ron and I picked up some sorbet, but halfway through it, I was overwhelmed by a wave of nausea, and I had to lie down in the grass, put my feet up to regain my center. At the end of the day, 26 miles is still a long way to run, and it takes its toll. You can't just stop. And resume life without your body giving you some feedback. They had beer, but it was Miller 64, triple yuck. But I drank the can and gave away the complimentary can cozy in my ongoing efforts to jettison knickknacks from my bag and make the ride home easier. There was plenty of food, but it was Idaho food, classic American heartland, or maybe heart attack, fare buns and meat and dairy and butter. How about some something green or some blueberries, guys? I'm a stranger in a strange land. After lounging around in the grass for a while, I checked my watch and hustled over to the aquatic center to make the 11 a.m. cutoff for the showers. I was the last one into the showers before they closed the door. I promised to hurry. From the small race, small world file, I met the guy that I had given my five pound bag of potatoes to the night before in the shower. He told me that he had driven down for the race and slept in his truck. And in my continuing effort to lighten my load, I was going to abandon my cheap hotel towel after my shower. But Mr. Potatoes said, hey, I'll take that too. (laughs) Good thing I wasn't leaving my undies. I caught the bus back to the hotel and was in a fine mood joking around with the other participants. One of them was a kid who was stricken with cramps, so I lectured him on electrolytes and gave him a couple lights to chew. I checked my Starbucks app and found one inside a nearby Fred Meyer grocery store. It wasn't even noon yet. When I stopped to get my Honest Cup Ojo and loaded up on fruits and veggies for the long ride back to Boise, yes, I got my blueberries, and I quite enjoyed them. As I was making my way back, and this is one of the great things about travel marathons and about our community in general, I kept running into other runners from the race at Myers, at the rest area on the highway, and everyone was all jacked up on those feel-good post-race chemicals. It's a great community. So, bottom line, am I upset about missing my goal time by two minutes? I got some online comments from folks that I must be gutted and upset, but truthfully, no, I'm not upset at all. I'm making great progress. I have no injuries. The plantar fasciitis gets better every day. And remember, this time of year, I wasn't even running. I'm super happy with my effort. If. If they hadn't changed the standards, I would have qualified twice by now. I am glad I registered for Boston with my waiver a couple of weeks ago. That's one less thing to worry about. I'll run a qualifying time at some point in the next six months. It'll probably surprise me. Maybe even at Boston. I came through the race clean and unscathed. I had no chafing, probably because of the dry desert weather evaporates your sweat and your clothes stay dry and they don't rub. And the weather was overall nice and cool, although I did get some sun in those last few open miles when it came out. My legs were okay, the quads remembered the downhills for a few days, but nothing debilitating. My Achilles were a little sore, but no plantar fasciitis pain, no knee pain, and nothing out of the ordinary, so it's all good. And next up on the Marathon of the Month Club, number 6, the Presque Isle Marathon in Erie, Pennsylvania. A nice flat course, at sea level, with two weeks recovery. Who knows? Hey, if I get my time this weekend, it'll be good for two years of qualification. <laughs> so this week, I was out in Phoenix at the Phoenician, which is one of those hoity-toity resorts where the nouveau and not so riche pretend to be members of a leisured cast. I was at a conference, but one great thing about the Phoenician is that it backs up against Camelback Mountain. And yesterday morning, I got up before dawn, and I ran up the mountain from the Chola Trailhead. There is no better exhilaration than standing on the summit of Camelback in the wee hours, glistening with sweat in the cool desert air, and watching the sun rise over Phoenix in the long shadow of the mountain. And I'm super happy to have regained the point in my training where I can roll out of bed and go run up a mountain. And as I was descending, skipping along, bubbling with the goodwill of life, the following song cycled onto my headphones and I had one of those iPod moments where it all synced. So enjoy your week, and I'll see you out there. This is not from Podsafe. This is from a a CD that I bought. It's uh, called... Noise Complaint, and it's off the album Strictly Rude by Big D and the Kids Table, and you should go out and buy a copy of this CD if you can find one. <laughs>
1: They're truly uncool!